Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Bramal Ramos, and I am one of the hosts on the channel. And I'm here today with Eileen J. Chung, to talk about her new book, Wild Grass and Morning Blossoms Gathered at Dusk, a translation of two works from the writer Lu Xun. Welcome to New Books, Eileen, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. Of course. So why don't we start at the beginning with your beginning? So your origin story. How did you come to work on Chinese literature? So my path to academia was rather circuitous. I started my undergrad years as a pre-med student, and I graduated with a degree in economics. Uh, needless to say, these choices were made more with practical concerns and materials in mind. I did, however, continue doing one thing, which I've loved since childhood, which was just to keep on reading. And I read very voraciously. I read works in English and world literatures translated into English. And I particularly enjoyed fiction. And when I enrolled in a modern Chinese literature course as an undergrad, I just became fascinated with this modern period, this period of cultural vibrancy, visionary youth, advocating for a new culture, and the passion I had for reading, translating, and engaging with the world of ideas to transform their own. And so I was, it was often really very inspiring to me. And this love of modern Chinese literature was also nurtured by the professor, of course, who was a remarkable teacher. And so I was armed with an inherent passion and with a gentle nudge from a mentor, I ended up in Beijing. There I taught English. I did some freelance work as a translator. And I also sat in courses in Chinese language and literature at Beijing University. And after that, I returned to the States for graduate school in modern Chinese literature, which eventually led me to where I am now. Great. So you mentioned, you know, a lot of things that will really resonate 
um, with some of the themes of the book, right? Translation, great teachers. <laughs> There's quite a bit of connection there. Uh, but as a way of getting us into this book, could you say a little bit about how this book came to be? So what inspired you to you know, translate um, these two works in full? So how did this project come about? So before I answer that question, I have a confession to make, Sarah, which is that when I first read Lucian, I wasn't very fond of them. And so now, <laughs> how did I go to not being very fond of Lucian to spending the good part of my career writing about and translating his work? And so when I first read Lucian, he, he just felt very distant to me. And I think that's for two reasons, uh, which some writers... It takes some amount of life experience to really appreciate the nuances of their works, right? And I think Lotion is one of them. For example, in Japan, where I am now, uh, the translation of Lotion's hometown is included in some junior high textbooks. And you might know, hometown is about a middle-aged man returning to his native village. He's filled with anticipation and nostalgia for a bygone past. And I find it really hard to imagine how students in junior high can appreciate the story. Um, at any rate, uh, another reason that Lucien's stories felt distant to me is that they didn't come as a blank slate, right? Uh, reading his stories, you know, they've always kind of been framed in advance. And I think this is true for many readers who, who either read Lucian in junior high or a high school textbook uh, in mainland China, or read Lucian um, in, in a course on literature and translation in, in other parts of the world. So, you know, this is a well-known story that, that, that I was told. This is also how I teach Lucian, which is that he published Diary of Man Man in 1918. It's the first short story written in the modern Chinese vernacular. So he's known as the father of modern Chinese literature in Wuhan, China. And Mao Zedong hailed him as the sage of modern China. So in the course of this deification, Lucian's then transformed into this larger-than-life revolutionary or warrior that's kind of not that easy to relate to. And a common adjective that's used to describe Lucian's writings is love, that he's cold. He's detached, clinical, China-obsessed. He was so critical of society and people, and he was also extremely critical of himself. Uh, but there's one question to ask, right, which is, where is the human behind this titan? And I think for most of us, it's that human connection, right? The ability of a piece of work to move us or to touch our soul that, that really makes us love reading. And so for me, it was really only after reading Lucian's works broadly and across different genres that I was able to see this kind of more human side and, and really to come to appreciate and, and, and really love his writings. So when you read broadly, you get a real sense for his artistic genius, also his versatility as a writer. Um, there's also a very central field of his writings. Um, he pays very close attention to transmitting visual, oral, and tactile experiences in language. And, and this you see readily in Wild Grass. And you also see a wildly imaginative side 
we need to tap into a little beyond or memories, imagination, and the fantastic and the defined. Now, in his essays, employs a very personal and personable, personable storytelling technique. Right, you find this in his memoir, Morning Blossoms Gathered at Dust. You also see an introspective writer with a real keen interest in human psychology and a close eye for details. And I think this is something that he shares with another favorite writer of mine, John Eileen, uh, or known in English as Eileen Chang. And you find a very relatable writer, one that's sometimes filled with uncertainty and self-doubt, but also passion and empathy and, and a really wounded and, and very wry sense of humor. And so as I find myself drawn into Lucien's world, I put my dissertation aside. I had been working on women lighters at the time, and many people told me this was a terrible idea, uh, but I did it anyway because I just loved engaging with Lucien's writings. And so fortunately for me, I, I was able to complete and publish a monograph on Lucien. And as I was writing and I read his essays, I often just marveled at how his depictions of culture were just so on target. And there were these times where they were just so hilarious that I would sit there and find myself laughing out loud. And some of these essays weren't translated. Um, and I would think, well, why isn't it translated? And I think part of the reason is that translating Lucien can be very daunting, right? He wrote so much. The last complete works of Lucien stands at 18 volumes, and he wrote on so many topics. And language and thoughts were often very dense and sometimes very difficult to understand. But having just finished my book and, and, and loving the process, I thought, well, why not me? So I then co-edited a volume translations of Lucian's essays, Jottings Under Lamp Light, which was published in 2007. So for me, it was just kind of a natural progression to translate Wild Grass and Morning Blossoms Jabbered at Shus. They're two brilliant works that I love, and they haven't been that accessible to a wide audience, at least not to audience of English readers. Um, many critics cite it as their favorite work, and I include myself in this group. And for those who want to know more about Lucian, there's really no better place uh, to, to to read about him than in his own words, right? In, in, in his memoir, uh, which is Morning Blossom Gathered at Dust, which paints a very different picture from the revolutionary warrior that we're familiar with, right? And I hope that in reading these two volumes together, that readers would be able to look at his writings afresh, to see the warm human Lucian beyond that image of the cold, steely, revolutionary warrior that we're so used to, right? And I was also hoping that we could look beyond his canonization as a quintessentially Chinese writer, right? I think right now in world literature, uh, Lucian is routinely taught. Um, and, and sure, he, he writes about China, but it's not just about China, right? I think you kind of miss the picture if we only frame him as a Chinese writer writing about the Chinese nation, writing about the Chinese people, right? And so in these two volumes, you see how he explores the human condition, right? And he asks questions like, what does it mean to be human, right? 
And how do we find meaning and beauty in an uncertain and unjust world? And these things are explored in a way that is compelling and deeply moving. And they're just as relevant to our world now as they were in Shin's time. Um, and these two volumes, uh, I really think, deserve to be on a shelf with every book lover. Of course, I'm slightly biased, but I, 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 I definitely think that. I mean, it makes sense. You've spent so much time with them. <laughs> Speaking to the bias, right? I think, I think that's a a bias you can, I suppose, be proud of, or I guess own. <laughs> Most certainly, yeah. With um, so you touched on this a little bit already. You know, you talk you talk to, to in your answer there about how wild grass and morning blossoms gathered at dusk. You know, they show Lucian a fresh, a human, a human Lucian, and it pushes back against sort of you know the idea of him being this cold, um, <laughs> uh, you know, epic figure. But was there anything in particular that made you want to put these two volumes together in one book? Right. I mean, you could definitely. I, I, I suspect you could have had, you know, a book of wild grass and a book of morning blossoms gathered at dusk. Was there any, you know, reason um, to to pull them together as one one volume? So initially, I actually had thought of translating them separately, um, but when I thought about it more, it made sense to to put them together. Uh, the pieces in both volumes were, were first serializing journals, right? Wild grass, pieces in wild grass in the journal, and you sit, let the talk. And the pieces in morning blossoms in Mangrangre had the wilderness monthly. Um, and there's actually an overlap in the time of writing. So some of the later pieces in wild grass were in the same period as some of the earlier ones in um, uh, morning blossoms. And so having both forms together, gives you a sense of Lucian's versatility, right? He was dealing with similar themes um, in different ways and in different forms. And I think reading them together makes the impact of his messages uh, even more power, powerful, right? And some of the themes are similar to the stories, such as the ephemeral nature of life, uh, brutality of human nature. Uh, but you also see a celebration of nature, its sense of wonder and a spirit of resilience. And you see this captured in the title and preface of Wild Glass, right? Alluding to the tenacity of grass to regenerate after wildfires and its ability to thrive even in the harshest terrains. Um, and in both volumes, there's also an appeal for empathy and care for the other. Um, and you see this in the humanizing of nature and objects in wild grass. You also see this in the portrayal of vulnerable subjects in morning blossoms gathered at dusk. Um, and as I'm speaking, um, you might get a sense that there's some connection with Buddhist ideas. And, and in fact, uh, Lucian was very much immersed in Buddhist thought, uh, which is, I think, particularly apparent in Wild Grass. But I, I think both volumes work uh, really well together. Mm -hmm. as, as one reader, they definitely do. And there's so much of him in both of them as well, or at least, you know, what we might recognize as him pulling from his life. Uh, with that, you know, you touched a little bit there on, you know, the overlapping time period that these two volumes both cover, but could you situate these works a little bit in terms of Lucian's life? So where do we find him when he's writing Wild Grass and Morning Blossoms Gathered at Dusk? 
So the pieces of both volumes were written between 1924 to 1926, and it was a time clout with chaos and violence. Uh, China at the time was ruled by competing warlord factions and subject to imperialist aggression. And in 1925, there were mass boycotts and anti-imperialist demonstrations that spread across the cities. And the one particular demonstration on March 18, 1926, um, Lucian called this the darkest day since the founding of the Republic. Some 5,000 demonstrators, many of them students, converged on Beijing's Tiananmen Square and they were um, protesting against um, um, imperialism. Um, and the soldiers opened fire. And among the 47 dead, three were Lucian students. He wrote a movable and tribute to them in a well-known essay in memory of Liu Hechen. And he wrote that he was stunned into silence by the killings, and he was left with nothing to say, followed by a sentiment that I'm going to quote. And he said, I just feel that the world we live in is inhuman. I wanted to take inside and talk about Lucian's voice in memory of Liu Hechen. In the aftermath of many protests in China and Hong Kong, uh, that have happened since Lucian wrote the essay, now it's almost 100 years now, the essay is routinely mentioned and quoted, and it's given voice to the generations after him who felt similarly stunned and without a voice to speak out against acts of government brutality against their own people. So this is a sign of how Lucian's defiant spirit and his critical voice continues to resonate today, right? Um, at any rate, <clears throat> Lucian was deeply affected by the violent aftermath of the protest on March 18, 1926. Uh, he condemned it in his writings, and for that, he was blacklisted. Um, and, you know, in the preface of his memoir, he, he tells us that he completed in a nine-month period in three locales, right? In Beijing, where he went into hiding, outside his different hiding places. Then he went to Xiamen and then Guangzhou. So this was most certainly a physically, mentally, and spiritually unsettling period of his life. But there's also a significant development in Lucian's personal life at this time. He met Xu Guangping in 1924. Xu Guangping was a symbol and activist involved at the Pitlu and Zorma College, where Lucian was teaching at the time. And she was a lowly student agitating against the principle for the right to political protests. And Xu Guangping uh, wrote to Lucian enlisting his support. Uh, Lucian sided with the students and he ended up resigning in protest. Uh, and after that, he wrote pieces just skewering the college president and also the intellectuals that were supporting her. And as you may know, Xu Guangping later became Lucian's common law wife. And by all accounts, Lucian had never seemed to have anticipated a liaison outside of his marriage. Uh, in 1906, he had submitted to an arranged marriage with Chuan. And by the time he met Xu Guangpul in 1924, he had actually already been married for almost two decades. Um, but by all accounts, Lucian kept his distance from his wife and treated her very coldly. Uh, the marriage was purportedly never consummated. And there's this quote that's frequently circulated. Uh, it comes from one of Lucian's friends, and he said that uh, Lucian gave Joanne as a gift that his mother gave him. 
right? So this was a gift you can only accept and support, but that love was something he knew nothing about, right? And this unexpected development altered his life drastically, as one can imagine. Um, Shu Guangping and Lu Shen eventually settled in Shanghai in 1927, where they resided and raised their son until Lu Shen's death in 1881. And many people know that Lu Shen's political shift to the last uh, came in 1926. And some scholars actually speculate that it might have been Shu Guangping who first radicalized Lu Shen, right? Uh, it pushed him into political action, starting with his participation in these student protests. <clears throat> but I also wanted to mention another personal event that uh, weighed heavily on Lu Shen just prior to his meeting with Shu Guangping. Uh, Lu Shen was very close to his younger brother, Zhou Zoreng, also a very famous writer. Um, and they were extremely close, but became estranged at the end of 1923. So when he started writing Wild Grass, he had actually just moved out of the extended family compound, which he shared with his mother and his brothers. And there's a part of me that just wonders if Lu Shen's estrangement from his brother and also the alternate family that he formed with Shi Guangpu might have allowed him to shred some of his old identity and possibly even give him a kind of release and a new start. Um, at any rate, it was during this time of both political and personal turbulence that Lushin began to experiment with creative writing beyond short stories. Um, I also want to draw attention to Lushin's interest in interest on creativity on just no creative acts. Uh, in 1924, he published his translation of Kuriyagawa Hakusen's Symbol of Agony. And Symbols of Agony was inspired by Western theorists such as Brunson and Koi. And according to Kuriyagawa, art was a means of releasing one's suppressed vital energies. And it allows for the creation of an individual world with total imaginative freedom. And, and it's not surprising, right, in this period of, of deep anguish for Lu Shen, uh, I think writing and, and writing these two volumes was, was absolutely a kind of release. And I think some of these ideas and symbols of agonies about creativity might have also just inspired Lu Shen's creative experimentation at this time, right? Um, and while there are certain continuities with his stories, uh, the pieces in Wild Grass and Morning Blossoms, I think you sense a kind of opening outward, a willingness to experiment with different narrative perspectives, and also just more notes of hope and defiance uh, than you see in his stories. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Mm-hmm. The brother you are mentioning, is that the brother who appears um, in the story The Kite? It is. And is that is, is that the same brother? The brother when he's, you know, he's thinking back, or at least this is the, how the, the piece goes. Um, he thinks of a time when he wronged his brother when they were children. And he he plans to, you know, apologize to his brother and hopes to feel better from it. And yet his brother claims not to remember it. And he feels no better for the entire episode. Is that the brother? It's the same brother. And it's just really interesting because by the time he wrote that piece, they were already estranged. Right. And so yet you still feel this really kind of close connection. Um, But... But, you know, there's been speculation of why they became estranged, and it's all speculation because neither brother talked about it, right? But after the estrangement, they actually still continue to work together, right? And they're friends. They just uh, never had direct contact. Hmm. He should have He should have uh, said he remembered the kite. <laughs> he remembered the kite episode. That's so interesting. Uh, before, you know, I'm... I, I feel I fear as if I've you know jumped in a little bit with wild grass there. Uh, but before we dive any further into wild grass, um, you know, thinking about this you know work of of translation as translation, um, I've read you know you describe the process of translating these works elsewhere as exhilarating, and you you know you mentioned before that some people have found. Uh, the idea of translating Lucian daunting. <laughs> what was your own experience of, of, you know, of translating like? How was that process for you? So the creative Gayatri Spiebach once said that translation is the most intimate act of reading. And translating a text you love is exhilarating because it allows you to read and appreciate the text in a completely different manner. Right, the reading process becomes very granular. You read sentence by sentence, word by word. Um, and Lucia's style in linguistic registers can be very challenging. Uh, he's notorious for long and difficult sentences, combined with classical Chinese with vernacular. Um, and reading at a granular level, you get a real sense of Lucia's skill in language and, and how much he loved the words the way. Um, and, and, and also just how much pleasure and delight he seemed to derive from the process, right? And well, translations can be rendered quickly, but Lucio's writings weren't designed to be quick or easy, right? Um, so Lucian once revised the myth of Prometheus in describing his role as a translator, which um, is, as, as, as you know, that we sometimes forget, uh, Lucian um, first said that he wanted to cure the spirits of his people, and when he said that, he was really referring to the act of translation, right? 
he said, uh, as a translator, he took the foreign fire to burn his own flesh to be consumed by his wages. Now, this sounds rather masochistic, but I think what's important to note here is that in the process of that difficult labor of translation, uh, both the self and the other and the others reading are transformed, right? And here I'm thinking of a different analogy that involves fire, right? Which is a phoenix emerging out of the fire. So following along these lines, while the laborer involved in reading and translating Lucian carefully can be very intense, difficult, and sometimes frustrating, uh, a feeling that his work has been well rendered and that He's been able to contribute to a process of giving an afterlife to works that you really love um, is also deeply satisfying. Um, and I certainly feel that the labor of translation was transformative for me. And I also wanted to note um, that when I was working, some part of the work on the volumes coincided with the height of COVID anxiety. Um, and so the themes of uncertainty inhospitable nature of the world and the need to maintain radical hope, right? And radical hope uh, uh, indicates that this is a hope that's without false optimism. It also not just giving into despair, right? I think these themes resonated with me deeply. And at the, at the same time, translating would gave my life a kind of searching team purpose and, and even a sense of freedom, right? So no matter what happened during the day, I knew with certainty every night uh, in the dark and in the quiet, I could lose myself completely, right? As if through a portal into this other world. And in the Cape Chauvelin grass, it's a dreaming world in which nature was alive and speaking. And it's populated with these fantastic subjects. Um, they include sentient corpses, shadow that wants to leave its master a flame encased in ice, and an arhat made of snow, among many, many others, right? And that imaginative world stayed very close to me as my own physical world shrank. And I became very attached to that world and also the subject's world. So, so I was really very reluctant for that translation process to end and, and, and that portal to another world to come to an end. If only he had written more pieces. <laughs> there are so many, and you, you know, you mentioned some of them there. There are so many fascinating, you know, figures and and beings and and things in in wild grass. Um, it sounds like it was a wonderful companion, <laughs> um, as um, as as your world shrank, and uh, and as I guess I suppose we all clung to the idea that. Um, despair like hope is a delusion as we were all um, go <laughs> going through going through the pandemic uh, with that why don't we turn properly to wild grass um, so you know you've given us a taste of it there in some of the different um, figures and creatures in it um, and as you say in the introduction that you you provide to this work um, it is often referred to as a collection of prose poems, but as you say, that description is not quite right. <laughs> it's a really eclectic mix of genres. You know, so there are prose poems, anecdotes, parables, dream writings, a short memoir, a little 
a little short play. You know, there's a lot of different forms. Um, so, you know, with that, um, how is form being explored in wild grass? What do you what do you think about the use of form here? And what was it like to translate and convey those different forms? Was that also an exhilarating <laughs> proposition? How was how was form experienced for you? Well, it's absolutely exhilarating. And and as you as as you had already mentioned, um People refer to the collection as one of Poe's poems, but it's not so accurate, right? It's got this whole wide range of different genres. And <clears throat> and why did Wushu write in different genres? Right? I think writing in different genres and style uh, gave Wushu a means of getting around the limits of form, right? He could experiment to find the best form that could express the emotions and ideas that he wanted to. and a lot of his emotions, ideas, and world were so complicated and so diverse, right? Um, so I think the need to package the collection and to contain it by classifying it as prose poems might reflect our own need for kind of ordering and labeling and containing things in a way that makes the world feel comfortable and makes sense, right? Um, so the world of one glass though does just the opposite right it highlights uncertainty contradiction the nonsensical and messiness of life in general all kinds of borders are being crossed um, you can't tell sometimes whether it's a dream or reality um and so all of this kind of messiness and crossing borders um, all of this is reflected in the content, style, language, and the form of the work itself, right? Uh, and I think it's this remaining open to uncertainty, being open to ambiguity and to contradiction, which makes many of his works difficult and uncomfortable. But, you know, sometimes you just want to read from leisure and have an easy reading, right? Uh, but I think it's also what Shin's what what makes Lucian's work so rich and profound. Um, as for your second question, what was it like conveying these different poems in translation? Um, it makes the work very engaging for a translator uh, to challenge you to engage the target language intensely, deeply, and in creative ways. So this is quite exhilarating for someone who finds working with language deeply pleasurable. Um, and it most certainly allowed me to hone my own writing skills. And it, it also made me think about uh, how, how Lucian's close engagement with translations had a very direct connection with the language, forms, and content of his created writings, right? Uh, and and I, I think when we think about Lucian as a world author, uh, uh, he, he was really amazing in, in the way that he was able to balance uh, all his knowledge and all his readings of different writers around the world and put them into conversation with uh, us, Buddhist, Daoish, and, Conf and Confucian ideas, right? Whether it be in terms of form, in terms of the use of language, or in terms of content, right? And so in that sense, I think, we could really say that Lucian's writings are, are geospecians of boiled art. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Or even further afield, and I'm thinking like of, um, I guess, 
think it's Revenge 2, which is quite different um, and definitely drawing on some some different um, reference points. I mean, there's lots of, and your, your footnotes highlight a lot of this actually throughout the, the two works, some of the different reference points that he's making and some of the different um, authors he's drawing on ab- absolutely with regards to, you know, his position in, in world literature and, and reaching reaching out, but also, you know, not just writing about, as you mentioned before, how he's often thought of as being a writer obsessed with China. Mm-hmm. You, um, we touched on it already, but you note in your introduction um, that, you know, there is so much darkness and death and wild grass, um, but which is something that critics have talked a lot about. Um, but the collection teems with life, which invites the reader to reflect on, you know, some really big questions. What counts as a meaningful life? What does it mean to be human? Um, and you also commented in the introduction that these pieces can be read as a whole, um, but they are often, and they can be read as standalone pieces. So with, you know, those two things in mind, is there a specific story that you think really encapsulates the big what is a meaningful life life type of question that you see in wild grass is there one one story among the many that you want to highlight here Lucian deals with uh, these issues in so many different ways in the collection right what counts as meaningful life what does it mean to be feeling and one of my favorite pieces is the first called autumn night uh the scene on opens with a very vibrant depiction of nature, trees, flowers, and the sky. And each one is fully alive, taking on human-like qualities, coexisting sympathetically, but sometimes also in tension. But I'm going to pivot and uh, like to talk about a much shorter, shorter and, and morbidly humorous piece. Um, it's called Tombstone Inscriptions. And it's reminiscent of Edgar Allan Poe's works, which Lucian translated and was quite fond of. And so in Tombstone's Christians, you have a narrator who sees himself in a dream. And this is just one of the many dreamscapes that you find in wild grass. And um, in a dream, he encounters a tombstone and a corpse. And presumably, uh, the tombstone and the corpse is the dreamer's own. And the tombstone is barely legible, but it writes about the difficulty of self-knowledge and the agony of self-reflection. And then all of a sudden the corpse sits up and starts speaking to the narrator. And rather than engaging the corpse, the narrator flees as fast as he can, right? He's afraid to look back because his corpse might be chasing after him. Um, And it's just a really brilliant and humorous piece. and I think this piece sums up why Lucian kept death close at hand, which was that death is a reality that all of us must face, yet we often live as if this death had nothing to do with us. And and this might come back to haunt us like the dream, right? So perhaps if we lived with death close to us, with the awareness that death could come at any moment, we would think more critically about ourselves, the meaning of this life, and also just how to live it, right? Uh, and, and with the tombstone inscriptions, right? Maybe to think about what we want to be inscribed on our tombstone inscriptions. So, Yushin mm, also wrote this in his uh, last piece, uh, 
in um, Morning Blossoms Gathered at Dusk, which is that it's the presence of Beth that makes him feel wholly alive. Um, I might be getting a little confused. It might be the last piece of uh, Wild Grass, which is Awakening. Um, and his works, you know, there can be no light without darkness. You see these dialectics constantly at play in Wilson's writings, life and death, light and dark, uh, hope and despair, right? And I think part of this living for Wilson meant retrospection and introspection. And really thinking very deeply about oneself, one's place in the world, and also one's responsibility to it. Right. And the shadow of death remains reminds him to live this life meaningfully, passionately, and fully. And I think his fascination with death and his writings about death also nudge his readers to consider the same. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful sentiment. That it, so wonder, wonderfully expressed. Thank you for that. And there is, you know, thinking of nostalgia and hope and, and death, so much of that carries over into the second book, the second volume, the second half of your book, Morning Blossoms Gathered at Dusk. Um, and, you know, thinking about life and I keep on going back to nostalgia because that is sort of um, how this, um, how you open the introduction of this piece up um, in that your book has the cover illustration of Morning Blossoms Gathered at Dusk. And I'm going to do a terrible job of describing it. So dear listener, you have to seek out the book because (laughs) the cover illustration um, of you know, the, the original or the combined version, Morning Blossoms Gathered at Dusk, has a woman dressed in a robe walking in a garden. And it's a very cheerful, charming, sort of, I want to say rustic in that it's a little bit crude, but it's very charming. And, you know, as you describe in the introduction, it has been described as nostalgic. But as you say, and I'll quote from your introduction here, Yet, if the home is imagined to be a place of warm, effective ties and a repository of fond childhood memories, Morning Blossoms does not quite live up to expectations. So the, the, you know, the story, the pieces that follow really push back against the idea of hopeful nostalgia or from, you know, friendly, familiar nostalgia that we get from this illustration. So thinking about tone how would you describe the overall tone of Morning Blossoms Gathered at Dusk? So the overall tone of Morning Blossoms Gathered at Dusk is one of laments. Many of the events we call them in the war are, are traumatic and, and tragic, right? He begins small with the death of his pet mouse and then the illness and death of his father. And towards the end, the death and the possibly suicide of his friend. And there are also fond memories interspersed in between, right? For example, in the garden of myriad grasses, this is his childhood paradise. He also has warm and funny memories of this nanny and, and intense gratitude for his Japanese professor. Um, but even so, um, these memories are characterized recounted wistful with a note of self-admonishment, right? Knowing now that that garden that was once his paradise is no longer and feeling regret for not knowing the life story of his nanny and not being a particularly good student and, and letting down his his anatomy professor when he decided to give us medicine, right? But interwoven with the lament is also an appeal 
it's this need to bear testimony to many of the others whose lives have been critical to shaping our own, right? And recollecting the past is a way of paying tribute to the people and the things that were meaningful to him. And so by gathering the stories of vulnerable subjects and retelling them, uh, child, nanny, outcast, forgotten professor, uh, Lucien validates their meaning and existence, right? So the names, lives, and worthwhile stories that would otherwise have been faded into obscurity are given an afterlife. And in this afterlife, there's also the potential to touch and transform those who read them. Um, well, here I think uh, it resonates with a theme in Wild Grass that each and every existence is similarly meaningful. And at the same time, each of our existences is also re relational, right? We're all touching others and, and, and leaving marks on this world. Mm -hmm. Thinking of leaving those marks, you, you mentioned his nanny. Um, and this was this was a, a figure, a character, a person <laughs> that I would love to hear you speak a little bit about because she pops up in several other stories. She pops up in the beginning, um, as you mentioned, um, the very first piece in this, Dogs, Cats, and Mice. Um, she is intimately wound up in the death of Lucian's mouse, which I will I will I don't want to spoil that story, so I'll just leave it there, but she is involved. Uh, so she is a fascinating woman, though, as, as we see her throughout this um, this work. So could you introduce her a little bit? You know, who is she? What do we know about her? And, you know, what does the portrait that Lucian paints of her, you know, tell us about him, about the collection? Um, how is she significant? I, I love this question because Bachelot is one of the most memorable characters in, in a memoir, right? Um, and if we compare to Lucian's stories, um, when um, initial stories we see an almost impenetrable wall between intellectual narrators and peasants, uh, one can even argue that stories are more about the walls and the barriers, right? About the alienation from oneself and the alienation from others than about the actual characters themselves. So one thing's in particular is a peasant into a hometown in Qiangsao at the end of Blessings. They're presented as dull, stiff, with, with wooden expressions on their faces, right? And Achang, Lushan's nanny, as seen through the eyes of the child, is portrayed very differently. We see a vivid, vivacious, and larger-than-life character, and, and she easily steals uh, the show in, in the scenes where she shows up, right? Um, she's flawed and endearing and hated and loved at once. She stomps on the boy's pet mouse saying, sorry, I think you've been away. Um, and then listener, lies. Listener, you, you did not hear that? You did not hear that? Who knows what happened to the mouse? <laughs> yeah, but even worse, right? Uh, she, she, she lies about it, right? And she, she tells the boy that it had been killed by a cat. And then, and then this leads Lucian to this whole theory about uh, the reason why he eats cats is probably because of, of this this childhood trauma, right? Although that mm -hmm. hatred is is somewhat misplaced, um, and Achang controls uh, the movement of the boy, right, and makes sure following these ridiculous rules of etiquette. Excuse <clears throat> me. But Achal also enthralls the child with colorful stories about the long hairs, referring to the boxes, and in a visit to her hometown, 
she buys him a copy of the monster from Shanghai Jing, the classic of Larrington's and Seas, which he had been obsessed about, and, and nobody was able to get him a copy. And it turns out that this book that Achan gave him ends up inspiring Lucian's lifelong love of collecting picture books. Now, we don't know anything about Achan other than what Lucian tells us. And at the end of the account, he tells us that, in fact, he didn't know her real name or her real life circumstances, right? Well, how did he end up becoming his nanny and coming to the household? Um, she had died probably some 30 years before he wrote the essay. And the only thing he knew, Lucian said, was that she had an adopted son. And he guesses that she might have been widowed at a young age. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, let me just clear my throat and use take a little sip of water. So, because Lucian's essay diverted to Achum, um, even though we don't know much about her, uh, she's entered into the cultural imaginary, right? This lively, colorful character makes a deep impression on readers who are in turn. Um, Led, led to thinking about the roles and fates of the many Achals of the world, right? These stories are marginalized, simplified, distorting, or simply remain unknown. I think the reason that I wanted to ask her was about about her, about his nanny, about Achang, was because, you know, as as you mentioned, she is she's such a as you would imagine from a small child, such a formidable figure in the early in the early stories, which are from Lucian's early life. Um, but I just love the way in which you mentioned he responds to her procuring the book he wanted. Um, and I'm reading here from your book. After, you know, after she procures the book, he says, she was able to accomplish what others were either unwilling or unable to do. She did indeed have marvelous superpowers. My resentment against her for murdering my mouse vanished completely from this moment on. I just love this in particular just because of the, you know, the very clear love for books that he has that comes through so clearly in this story and that then just follows him through the other pieces and how it all comes back. To this woman, his nanny, the mouse killer. Um, <laughs> this because there is so much about you know his love of literature and and books and teachers that really that flows throughout um, Morning Blossoms Gathered at Dusk, um, which was just a real a real joy to read <laughs> on a on a personal level. Um, I, I wanted but, to to add just a little note to that right the the common story that we talk about. Lushin is that, um, you know, he saw this slight incident um, when he was in Japan. Um, he saw that uh, one of the Japanese, there was a Japanese executioner and uh, a Chinese man about to be decapitated and all the Chinese people around are looking on apathetically. And so then Lushin then decides that, you know, he was originally going to be a doctor and then he decides that he's going to abandon medicine and just start writing because there was no means of curing people's bodies if you can cure their souls right and he wanted to save people through uh translating and uh introducing work uh works of world literature right to galvanize his own people 
Um, so this story about him just having this abrupt shift to becoming a writer, um, the shift wasn't that abrupt at all. Like he had always had this love of, of reading, right? And he always also uh, had been writing uh, essays of literary criticism in uh, 1907, and he had been translating uh, works of world literature from 1903, right? And so, um, I, I think this love of reading was always there from the start, right? In spite of what we say that there was this abrupt shift. Um, and as a translator, uh, he, he, he started translating in 1903, uh, with, uh, Julius Burns, uh, science fiction novel. And then at his deathbed, he was translating, uh, Goebbels, uh, death souls, right? It remained unfinished. So you're absolutely right to pick up this this love of reading. He he was he was so astounding how much he read in world literature and how familiar he was with um, also just uh, traditional classical literature. Right? He people say that he's anti-traditional. Uh, in fact, um, um, he was very well read in the classics. Uh, he wrote classical poetry. He also compiled uh, 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 books on uh, classical Chinese fiction and, and, and poetry, right? Um, so, so the scheme of books is, is absolutely uh, uh, resonates in, in Wild Glass when he talks about the influence of these different kinds of books, right? Not just the Shanghai team, uh, but also the classics of filial piety, how they inspired terror in him, right? <laughs> And, and other works that he had he had to um, produce memorized passages from on, on the spot <laughs> books books of inspiring and terrifying um, um, natures of in in throughout this work as a whole. Uh, but you know, I I had a chance there to sort of highlight you know one piece and one story and one one figure one character that really you know strike struck me when I was reading. Um, this book, but there are so many really interesting episodes in Morning Blossoms Gathered at Dusk. But um, before, you know, we draw to a close, Eileen, I wanted to give you a chance. Is there, you know, one more piece from this work that you want to highlight here? Maybe one that, you know, speaks to something that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet. If, if you had to highlight one among the many, what one would it be? Since I'm in Japan right now, I thought I'd draw attention to the essay Professor Fujinome. Uh, here, Lucian memorializes his anatomy professor from his student days in Yukmir. Um, What's interesting is the degree of sentimentality and the way he glorifies his Japanese professor. I, I usually, Lucian's uh, portrayals of the characters are extremely complex. So, if you permit me, Sarah, may I read the ending of the essay? Of course. Sure. So um, in this passage, Lucian is writing about his professor 20 years after he last had any contact with him. And I'll start reading. But for some reason, I often think of him. Among those whom I consider my teachers, he is the one who gave me the most encouragement and the one I feel most grateful to. I often think of how his ardent hopes for me, his tireless teaching, were, on a smaller scale, for China, in hopes that China would develop a modern medical science, on a larger scale, 
It was for scientific research, that is, in hopes that modern medical science would be transmitted to China. In my mind and in my heart, his character is a great one, even though his name isn't known to many people. So here we see that Professor Fujino's race is downplayed. He's portrayed as a humanitarian figure fighting against the oppression of the Chinese people. Now, I wanted to go back to Lushin's reason for translating, right? Why was translation such an important part of his career, right? And, and translation was really where, where he started, right? He said he translated to search for new voices from oral lands, which is, it is that voice of another that we are able to find a voice of our own when we have either lost it or, 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 or just don't have one, right? So Rochelle notes at the end of Professor Pugenome that whenever his spirits are flagging, right, it is the photograph of this teacher that's hung on the wall and also the memory of this teacher's voice that urges him to keep on writing. And what was Lucian writing at the time? Lucian was writing essays attacking his intellectual compatriots whom he felt were complicit with the government's oppression of its own people, right? And he derisively refers to his intellectual adversaries as estimable gentlemen, uh, General Jameson. Now, at the core of this essay, which is among Lucian's most hopeful, is a response to the question, what does it mean to be human in an inhuman world, right? Lucien wrote this essay in 1926, so it was already two decades after he last had contact with his teacher. Now, what's interesting is that the timing of the publication, it was published at the height of anti-Japanese sentiments, right? And, and this essay has a share of inaccuracies pointed out to by many scholars. Uh, while some of it might be the result of laxes in men memory, many are likely deliberate. Um, some inaccuracies are there to enhance dramatic effect, uh, and also the sentimental kind of emotional part of the work. And others are likely there to overcome that kind of jingoistic nationalism um, that was prevalent at the time, and and likely also to evade censorship. So. And this might explain why, for example, the essay is extremely sentimental. Uh, also, why Professor Fujin is um, depicting, you know, almost more Chinese than the Chinese compatriots, right? Uh, uh, so devoted to the freedom of the Chinese people. Now, this imagined friendship that Lu Xin reconstructs, it crosses national boundaries or between two antagonistic nations at that. And it shows the capacity of the voice of another to transform one's own. And what's most remarkable is the enduring afterlife of this essay, uh, when Lushin selected works that were to be translated and published in Japan, he left the selections to his translator, but asked that Professor Fujino be included. And so the famous essay has been anthologized in junior high school textbooks in China. Uh, the translation is also included in some high school textbooks in Japan. And the friendship of both men has been memorialized in books and conferences in different languages, uh, also in Luxian Museums in Beijing, Shanghai, Shaoxing in Japan, also in Sendai and Awara, 
the hometown of Fujino Genkuro, who, who would have remained unknown were it not for Lucian's tribute to him. And so the story of this friendship between the Japanese professor and his Chinese student, as Lucian has depicted it, has endured and continues to endure as a symbol of Sino-Japanese friendship, even through times of political duress. Um, and it's generated new personal and boundary-crossing exchanges among those who've been moved by their friendship. And, and now it's almost 120 years since the two men first met, right? And it's an example of the power of storytelling at its best, right? It shows the capacity of literature and art to cross boundaries of space and time and to move people. And also to transform the ways we see and relate with one another and the world. Thank you for highlighting that story in particular. Um, I think it's a great place, actually, with, you know, the power of storytelling and of... Um, <laughs> I'm conscious of the fact that we're navigating time zones right now, so we're reaching across, and all of all of that, also of books and of of lost lecture notes. There's it was one of my favorite pieces in in the work. So thank you for highlighting it and for providing that really interesting, you know, historical context and background of of how that story, you know, came to be. But with this story, um, we come to the end, actually, of your book, almost, and the end of our conversation. But before we draw to a complete close, Eileen, um, what are you working on now? What is inspiring you at the moment? You, you mentioned a little bit before that I think you, you said the complete works of Lucian are 18 or 15 volumes. I can't remember, but 18. So... Are you working on more, Lucian, or, or what is what are you working on right now? So I'm just addicted to Lucian. I can't get off the Lucian bandwagon. <laughs> he just continues to inspire me so. And so at the moment, I'm writing an essay on Lucian and the transformative power of art. Uh, I've also begun translating some of the stories from Outcry. And I'm really just enjoying the opportunity to go through that quarter again, right? To immerse myself in another one of Lucian's world. So, so I'm still working on Lucian, still inspiring. Fabulous. Well, the my very best of you know luck and and hope for good writing days and nights. Um, and I hope that he he continues to be, you know, exhilarating for you. Um, best of luck with those future projects. And thank you for taking the time to talk with me about this project. Thank you so much, Sarah. I really enjoyed the conversation. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.